please join me in welcoming Beth Moore. I'm so grateful. Thank you for your kindness to me. It is my great privilege to be able to serve you this late morning. And I feel uh, as at home as these next few words would indicate to you as I am in First Baptist Church of Waco. I was raised in First Baptist Church of Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and moved to Houston, Texas, and joined First Baptist Church Spring Branch. I spent the next 30 years at First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas. So if that tells you anything at all, I had to smile when I saw the doctor I, before my name in the program because I, I don't have an earned doctorate, but if I did, it would be in being First Baptist, so I, I hope that that is of some comfort level uh, to you uh, that I do bring that experience. I love the Word of God. I've said so many times that the Son of God saved my soul and the Word of God saved my mind, and I mean that in every conceivable way. I was raised in a very troubled home, a very unstable home where I fell victim to childhood abuse and also went through the confusion of watching the perpetrator then at church serve in very, very uh, uh, outward roles and very prominent roles. So it was quite a way to grow up, but in a way that I can only give glory entirely to Jesus, there was something that happened in Sunday school in those baby bear chairs that I believed I had been given, I suppose you would call it the gift of faith, because I had every reason not to believe that someone who was in that kind of authority would always be safe. But he has been the love of my life, and it is my great joy to be able to speak of him today. And I will do so from the pages of the book of Acts. Would you turn with me there? The name of this message is knowing this from that. Let me say that again, knowing this from that. And if you'll permit me, I'll take a few minutes to build up to that, pour a little bit of foundation for it. It is my normal practice in my own disciplines uh, for the faith. In the early morning, I just read through one book of the Bible after another. Sometimes I will do the year plan where it's going through the Bible uh, over the course of those 12 months, but it's not my preference, and it's not my preference because it goes too quickly. I like to slow it down some and take it in, and you know, I just I, I figure whenever I'm finished with it, I'm finished with it, and then I start all over again. And I'll normally go back and forth between the Old and New Testament. I just sort of do my my thing. And this year, I began with uh, Genesis and Exodus, and then I went to Matthew and Mark, and I just go back and forth and back and forth and read through one book of the Bible at a time. My journal open, my pen out, taking notes or praying through it, whatever way that that the Holy Spirit seems to be leading. And so some months ago, I was in the Gospel of Luke, and I do so dearly love it. I am intrigued, and this is 62 and a half years in 
to being mesmerized by the inspiration of the God-breathed word that somehow a writer that began with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we beheld his glory as the one and only. Then there's another who said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself had carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. What in the world is that? How marvelous and how beautiful and what he did was write the gospel of Luke. And then he refers to it in Acts 1, and I'll read verse 1, though our reader has read through these portions. I'll pick out just a couple of verses and then go to our main part. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, and of course he's speaking about Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want you to jump down with me as it says that they, of course, ask, when is it you will set up the kingdom? He said, it is not for you to know, but by the Father in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then 9 through 11, please. And after this, he had said, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I want to hold there for just a moment because there is this most gorgeous echo back to 2 Kings 2, which would have been as familiar a story as they could possibly have known as Jewish men growing up, that here on this mountainside, that they watched him go before he would pour out his spirit. They were so familiar with what had happened in the narrative between Elijah and Elisha. And 2 Kings 2 just begins by telling us it, it came time for God to take Elijah up in a whirlwind. And so he had these places that he needed to go to be right where he was to be. And Elisha kept following him. He kept trying to say goodbye to him. Elisha would not say goodbye, but continued to follow him. And so Elijah, then it says, comes to the Jordan River and he takes off his cloak, and he strikes the water with it, and the water divides to the right and to the left, and the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, cross over together. And Elijah asks Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha asks for something that perhaps we are very familiar hearing. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, he says. Well, Elijah answers back to him, you've asked a difficult thing, but if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Sure enough, you know how the story goes. Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind, and it says in verse 12 of 2 Kings 2, Elijah saw it, cried out, my father, my father, 
the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more, and he took hold of his garment, and he tore it in two. Then he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took that cloak that had fallen from Elijah, and he struck the water with it. And he said the most interesting thing, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? In other words, I suppose he's gone now. Will I ever know the same God that Elijah knew? Only a strange thing, and I've always wondered, did he strike the water with the cloak out of frustration, or did he expect what he got? One way or the other, he struck the water, and the water, oddly, but by no coincidence, split right in two, just as it had for Elijah. For the truth of it was, he had the same God as the former prophet had. Turn those many, many chapters and centuries later to Acts chapter 1, and you see some of the significance in a narrative that they saw him with their own eyes, watching. Only this was no mere prophet. This was the Son of God, and they knew it. And it says, and I pick up back at 9 again, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Now, I know that you and I, many of us who've been raised in the faith, have heard about the ascension so many times. It's just normal to us that he's just like lifting off the mountain, but I really think we should tarry with it a minute because it is a strange thought. That there Jesus is on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he's going to lift off of it right in front of them. Well, no kidding that they're gazing into the heavens. <laughs> what else would you do with the feet of Jesus just like dangling in the sky until a cloud comes and overtakes him? And so it says that while they were going and gazing into heaven, suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and you have to wonder if they were the ones that had been seen at the tomb, his guards. In verse 11, they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken for you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And it says, and I'll read uh, 12 through 14, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. And familiar names to us, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So rewind just a little bit with me when I told you that I went straight from reading the Gospel of Luke to deciding what I was going to read next just a couple of months ago. And it just seemed to me it might be a good thing to move straight from Luke into Acts because it was the sequel. Go on with it. 
So as I began to read it, just right next to the gospel, did not miss a beat, the very next morning after I'd finished Luke chapter 24, I started Acts chapter 1, I began to notice something that stood out to me. And to me, maybe I'm overstating it, but to me, one of the most marvelous things about the Word of God is no matter how many years you study it, no matter how intensely No matter how many times, for any of us, I taught Sunday school for 23 years. Do I have any Sunday school teachers in the house? You go by a program where over this many sets of years, you have taught all the way through the Bible. I had done that. I have no idea how many lessons through the years, cabinets and cabinets and cabinets full of lessons, in-depth Bible studies, but still the most marvelous thing about it It doesn't matter how many times you've seen a passage, all of a sudden something jumps out at you. That is the Holy Spirit animating the Word of God that for some reason, as many times as you have read it, you see something pop out you've really not noticed before. And I think it is because it followed right on the hills of Luke. I want you to hear it. I'm going to read portions of it, and I just want you to listen for it. Acts chapter 2, you know how it begins. It's the day of Pentecost. Finally, it arrives. They're gathered in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the house where they were staying, and they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And of course, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when that sound occurred, they became confused looking around going, we're each hearing it in our own language. We know a lot about this story. We know how they say, these these men must be drunk on new wine. And it says in verse 14, pick up with me there, 2.14, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews, And all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke, and the sun will be burned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes, and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this, these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you, just as you yourself know Would you look with me at verse 32? Same chapter, Acts 2. God raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself that says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Stay with me. Verse 36. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. Go further in Acts, and Luke will continue to refer not only to Jesus, but he will say again and again, this Jesus. If you have an ESV, it says in uh, Acts 1.11, this Jesus. But I love the way it is said in the CSV that I'm reading out of, the NIV, the New King James, and the NET that says, this same Jesus. It says in verse 111, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go. Knowing this from that, because there is this Jesus and there is that Jesus. And our challenge is to figure out which one is our Jesus. The Jesus of our churches, the Jesus of our ministries, the Jesus of our communities of faith. Do we know this Jesus from that Jesus? We have lost our way in our prophetic Christian witness in this nation. We have either stripped Jesus of virtually all meaning, power, and particularity, or we've monetized and politicized him. We do not recognize our own Savior, and because we don't, our Savior is unrecognizable in us. Jesus was a common masculine name in Judaism, as you would well know, as common as you could possibly find in Hebrew, Joshua. So the question which Jesus we are talking about is relevant because there were many called Jesus. But there is this Jesus and there is that Jesus. And so which Jesus is ours? Our era, not not so unlike many others, is marked by the exploitation of Jesus. There's nothing on earth more natural to our fleshly nature than shaping Christ into someone who agrees with us. Nothing more natural than being open-eyed to the Jesus that we like in the scriptures and being strangely blind to the Jesus that we don't so much like in the scriptures. Nothing is more fundamental to our natural humanity than wanting to create God in our own image. Because, you see, there is this Jesus, this Jesus, Luke writes. And then there is that Jesus. And that Jesus... He pretty much always sees eye to eye with us. That Jesus is offended over the very same things 
that offend us. That Jesus is repelled by the very same people who repel us. And that Jesus, he evolves. And we want him on our side, but this Jesus wants us on our knees. This Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Instead, we are saying, no, you follow me and I will make you fishy to people. <laughs> Jesus defies our categories. You cannot make him a religious or political, conservative or liberal. While he is not apolitical, we cannot stuff him into our partisan categories. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and also a man who termed himself as being full of complete joy. He is Jesus who is not just with us, his spirit is also in us. He is Jesus who is not only in us, but he is also with us. This Jesus who in our day also would have been crucified. We would have not have liked him any better than they did. We too would have either yelled crucify him or we would have scattered like mice. And I can tell you this, if you've got a Jesus that never offends you, it is that Jesus because it is not this Jesus. It is not this Jesus. This same Jesus, the eternal son of God, who said before Abraham was, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who according to John 12, 41, was seen by Isaiah, seated high upon a throne, exalted. Psalm 115.8 says a strange thing that is very pertinent to all of humanity. It says that those who make idols become like them. What it means essentially is that we become like what or whom we worship. I believe this is true even in regard to who we fashion Jesus to be. Who we are becoming in our devotion to him because in this, we will see a glimpse of who we believe him to be. Stay with me here. In general terms, regarding cultural Christian witness in this nation, that we do not recognize this Jesus is obvious because this Jesus is not recognizable in us. You become like who you worship. And I suggest to you that we are worshiping some of that Jesus if this is our present witness in this world. And I'm speaking, of course, in general terms, knowing there are many exceptions. 
Because you can tell somebody's Jesus by looking at someone's life. Not just listening to their talk. You can tell if it's this or that Jesus by a person's life. This Jesus is most conspicuous in the Gospels. We have to let him speak for himself. What were his ways in serving and reaching people? What, what were his ways in prayer? His ways of communicating? What, what drew Jesus? And then what caused Jesus to withdraw? We need a generation willing to cry out the words of the psalmist in Psalm 25, verses Four and five, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. I think somehow, some way, we have lost this Jesus, this one. shown so beautifully to us and so explicitly in the Gospels to the disciples, he said, this same Jesus. To the listeners gathered for Pentecost, this same Jesus. To new seekers, we would see Paul say later in the book of Acts, this Jesus. So I'm going to look at a couple of places those words pop up in the book of Acts. Would you look with me in Acts 4? And I'd like to read verses 5 through 12. Acts 4, verses 5 through 12 say this. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? And this was, of course, the man that had been begging outside the gate beautiful all this time, unable to walk, and they had stood him by the name of Jesus to his feet, and he had danced and leapt before people in his gladness for the miracle that had taken place. And verse 8 says, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The most obvious reason why we must discern between this Jesus and that Jesus that we would create in our own image is because only this Jesus can save. When we start preaching another Jesus and we come to invite them to know him, we invite them to know that Jesus who has very little resemblance to this one. 
I am saying whether we like this Jesus or not, in every scene or chapter, this is the only Jesus who saves. So we mislead people to another Jesus who may have the power to make them feel better, but he has absolutely no power whatsoever over their souls and eternal life. Christ's identity is in his particularity. I love this quote by Ben Myers in his book on the Apostles' Creed. He writes, the heart of Christianity is not an idea, but a brute fact. Not a theory, but a particular human life. Not a general principle, but a person with a name, Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because Jesus himself is at the center. The continuous reading of the four Gospels is the central spiritual discipline of the Christian life. In other words, we go to them and go to them and go to them again. Yes, we read through all of Scripture leading up to him, everything after him, pointing back to him. Of all things from beginning to end, but to restart over and over again back in the pages of the gospel where we see how did he behave, what drew him, what repelled him, what kinds of things did he call out? How did he forgive? What did he do? What was he like, this Jesus? And of course, this Jesus is not the Jesus of the Gospels only, but the Jesus of all Scripture. Acts 17, 2 through 4, listen for those words again. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And I'm quoting him now. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This Jesus after reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, you'd be very familiar with this, in verses 3 and 4, repeats it. The one who was buried and raised according to the scriptures. Dead, buried, and raised according to the scriptures. In his book, I Called Paul and the Hermeneutics of Faith, Francis Watson writes these words, the Christ who sheds light on scripture is also and above all the Christ on whom scripture simultaneously sheds its own light. This Jesus, anticipated by the scripture, fulfills the scriptures and opens the mind to understand the scriptures. I would like to say this because I have the privilege of having received this invitation from you and to be a representative of my gender in this place along with a, another servant who will serve you as well. This Jesus still calls, cloaks, and gifts women to serve him. I'll say again, this Jesus, I don't know about that Jesus. 
I, I don't know. I'm confused about that Jesus's take on the whole thing, but I'm not confused about his take on this because he was blatant. The one who is the way went out of his way over and over again to give dignity to women. Luke, of all the gospel writers, you would know this. Make sure that we know this. He could not be more intentional about making this point, and not only in his gospel, but also in Acts. Just want to throw out a couple of places. You see it so blatantly. You saw it back in Acts 1, 14, where it says, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Almost certainly, when he says including the women, he's giving familiarity to what he has already written And in in Luke's gospel, it would be especially in a very concentrated form there in the very beginning of Luke chapter 8 as he describes the women and names several of them that were following along, that were with them, with them. These women followers of Jesus. Do you know how long it took me to ever hear from a pulpit that there were women who were also following along? Providing for them out of their means? You hear it again when Peter says a little later in verse 15, he addresses brothers and sisters. Then Acts 2, 17 and 18, so blatantly when it says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women. I got no personal agenda here. I got no ax to grind. I have ax to teach. (laughs) In particular, chapters one and two, the books of Luke and Acts don't present women displacing men but they certainly do show the Holy Spirit placing women solidly in the gospel work. This Jesus, I don't know about that Jesus. I have not come to you today to talk to you about that Jesus. I have become very, very discouraged about that Jesus. But as far as I can tell, this Jesus right here did not dream of wasting half the gospel witness on the planet. They evangelized and they served. In Acts 9, we see the benevolence ministry of quote, unquote, a disciple named Tabitha. One of the first house churches in Jerusalem met in John Mark's mother's home in Acts 12. Had a, a colorful discussion with a brother not long ago who thinks that these women who were having these churches in their homes were su- simply offering them a place to sit down and maybe some cookies. And I'm going to tell you something I'm all about cookies. <laughs> I, I like cakes as well as anyone. 
I, I can bake a pound cake that would make you cry, sob your eyes out. But afterwards, I'm going sit, to sit you down and say, I want you to hear about Jesus. Because that's how this thing goes. First believer in all of Europe was Lydia in Acts 16. We know that Timothy, who begins traveling with Paul in Acts 16, was raised up in the scriptures by his grandmother Lois and by his grandmother Eunice. In Acts chapter 18, Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, caught a glimpse of a very gifted young theologian named Apollos, and they took him under their wing. They took him under their wing and taught him the way of God more accurately. In Acts 21, we're told of the four daughters of Philip who were of all things prophetesses. This is several decades after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. The reason why that is so important is because you will be told over and over again, as I have been told, that it was just that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had anything to do with women really speaking. Well, here we've got years past And here we got these women, and it's several decades after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 that occurred somewhere between A.D. 30 and 33. This is Paul's visit to Philip's house in Caesarea, happening just before Paul made it to Jerusalem and was arrested right around A.D. 57. In his letters, Paul calls out the names of numerous female co-workers in the work of the gospel. The most concentrated list of all right there in that gorgeous ending of Romans. Say a couple last points here. This Jesus is the one that poured out his Holy Spirit honest people. You got that from the very beginning, didn't you? That they were waiting there, waiting there, looking up. The connection between the two is that he is about to cloak them, not a prophet like Elijah, but the Son of God himself is about to cloak them with power from on high. Luke 24, 49 says it like this. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. I love that Galatians 4, 4 and 6, 4 through 6 say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, listen carefully, I know you know this, but this exhilarates me in a way I can hardly describe. God has sent the spirit of his son, Christ's spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the same Holy Spirit that John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize us with, with spirit and with fire, I say to you, church, we are in such desperate need of the Holy Spirit. That's what enlightens our mind to the Holy Scriptures. We must have the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
again, I speak in general terms, we've quenched so much of the fire of the Spirit. And we, we've either done it out of lack of knowledge, out of carnality, or out of our insistence on control. But we have done it all right. We were meant to be empowered and empowered to witness that our lives would just be illuminated thunderously by this same Jesus, bold in love, bold in truth, neither ever having to compromise the other. A powerful people. In, case, in, in fact, 2 Timothy 3 even says that those who seem to have all the religious outside but lack its power, he says they have nothing to do with them because this Jesus comes with power, not just talk. Generally speaking, the biggest miracle we have managed to perform is to turn wine back into water. There surely are bigger wonders than that. He is still distributing gifts, still equipping to testify still burning our tongues where we cannot keep to ourselves what we have seen and heard of Jesus. Listen, we can be too cool for tongues of fire. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. There is such a thing as being way too cool for Jesus to use you feverishly. Because if you do not think he is willing to make you look ridiculous if that's what it takes. Then you've got some that Jesus that isn't this Jesus. Because as Paul said, if I'm a fool, let me be a fool for the sake of Christ. Ain't no thing to me. I'll lastly say this if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'll start reading at verse Seven. This Jesus can get you into trouble. Can I hear an amen in the house? <laughs> this Jesus. I don't know about that Jesus. I have a feeling that that Jesus is much safer. This Jesus can get you in a whole lot of trouble. Acts 6, 7 through 15. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. It's so important to see those words because of where this is about to go. By the time it hit the priesthood, and they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah, there was a serious problem. 
Now Stephen, verse 8, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue com composed of both the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. So they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. And they also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place in the law. Please listen carefully. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, everybody say this Jesus, of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And verse 15 says, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You know, we hear stories like these from the scriptures, from the time we're little bitty kids, if you were raised in the church like I was. And those stones can soften on us. I cannot think of much more violence than being stoned to death. And he saw Jesus standing. welcoming him home. There is this Jesus and that Jesus. That Jesus would never put us in an awkward positions with those in our sphere of influence or call us to speak boldly to those who didn't already believe. That Jesus would never put our lives at risk or really call us to lay anything down that was precious to us or call us to give anything up. That Jesus doesn't make us uncomfortable. He gets it. That Jesus calls us to take up our car and follow him to church. <laughs> Not take up our cross and follow him to death, that Jesus is so safe and tepid, so comfy and cuddly, he's like a purring old house cat, that Jesus, not this Jesus, this Jesus is a lion, he led his disciples to know when they needed to slip out of a crowd and escape trouble and when they needed to stay put, be persecuted, arrested, sometimes beaten, sometimes in prison, and sometimes put to death. Listen, it is this same Jesus who makes us no longer that same person. Can I hear anybody testify in the house? That same woman, that same man, this same Jesus makes us different. This same Jesus in Revelation 1 was such an overwhelming revelation of Jesus that John fell like a dead man, laid his hand upon John and said words that simply could not be more familiar to John. Don't be afraid. Jesus warned them when they'd be persecuted for his name's sake. Told them. Matthew 10, Luke chapter 10. This is what's going to happen to you. 
And then he would say at the end of the discourse, don't be afraid. When they were terrified by the storm and even more terrified by what they thought was a ghost walking on the water, don't be afraid. It is I. Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, bright cloud, envelops them. God spoke from the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They fell down on their faces in terror. Jesus touched them and said, don't be afraid. This Jesus, this Jesus, I don't know about that Jesus. But I can tell you this. Whatever may come, be it discomfort, embarrassment, pain, persecution, suffering, imprisonment, death, that Jesus might never call us to such a thing. This Jesus said, whatever I call you to. I can assure you that when you see my face, what you have suffered, Romans 8.18, won't even be worthy of comparing to what I will reveal to you. I want to tell you in closing a little story about Annabeth, who is with me, my granddaughter. She's 10. My namesake. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the Jones all came over to the house, and I was expecting them. And we live out in the country, Keith and I. We moved out of town outside of Houston about eight years ago. And we don't have a fence. We just have acreage, and it kind of backs up to a creek on one side, and we just get to have a little space there. And so I was out in the front yard, and I was throwing with one of those throwers that you get at the pet store. I was throwing just as hard as I could balls to our two dogs, and they were just running as fast as they could, retrieving them, bringing them back to me. We just do this over and over. And I just figured I'd throw balls until the Jones came. Sure enough, they drove up, and as they were driving up in the driveway, the yard is large, and so the driveway is over there. As they're driving up, the door is already opening. The, the, the wheels have not stopped turning. And out comes a little foot that I have seen over and over again for 10 solid years. Was there at the hospital when she was born. Have called her primarily, her name is Annabeth, I'm Elizabeth, but to us we're Beth and Beth. I know this foot, I know all three of my grandchildren, and, and every single birthmark and freckle and mole on them. But I see this little foot go out, and it follows by this 10-year-old leg that starts running with everything she's got. You remember this, Annabeth? Just a couple of weeks ago, you remember what Bibby said to you? Just a couple of weeks ago, running just as hard as she can to me, grinning ear to ear, and I'm just waiting for her to come just bouncing into me because I'm thinking to myself, what a marvelous thing that she's still of the age to think there's nowhere more fun to come than to your grandmother's house. <laughs> That's my grandmother. I mean, I may not seem like much to you, but to her, don't even stop the car. And her foot is out of the car. She is hauling to me and legs just flying everywhere because she's just growing so fast. And she flies into my arms and I hug her so tight and I just kiss, 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 kiss all over her little head and, and all over her little hands. And I hold her out like this and look at her and said, Annabeth, she said, what? And I said, when you're in college, 
and you're on the college campus. And they, my grandmother's name is Bibby. And I said, and Bibby comes to see you at college. And you're on the other side of the campus right out there in front of everyone. Will you run to me just like that? <laughs> and she said, I don't know, Bibby. There's this face that I cannot wait to see that I have never seen. Someone asked me not long ago, Beth, of all the places you've ever traveled, which one is your favorite? And I tried to answer because I love, I love to make a good grade. I love to. I love to. And I thought, oh, I want to do this well. I want to do this well. But I just didn't have an answer. I finally looked at her and said, I haven't been there yet. I have a favorite place I have not been I have a favorite face I have not seen. And in childhood, I began to run to him. Don't you know, somewhere along the way in the unheard realm, he said, will you still run to me in college? Yes. Yes, I will. Will you run to me in young adulthood? When life's getting serious. The problems are getting really big. Yes. Yes. Will you run to me when your marriage is on the brink and you think you won't make it? Oh, I hope so, yes. When you're trying to raise kids to be somebody different than you were when you were a little girl, Jesus, yes. Will you run to me when you're sick? Yes. Will you run to me when you're so happy? Yes. Will you run to me when you're dying? Oh, yes. And don't let anybody get in my way. Because let me tell you, when the day comes, I am indeed going home. Bless you.